for tuning into the Glossy Podcast. I'm your host, Jill Manoff, and today I sit down with Melinda Robertson, co-CEO of Australian fashion brand Scanlon Theodore's U.S. business. Scanlon Theodore specializes in oh-so-chic workwear for women, and Melinda and her co-founder have been growing its presence in the American market since 2017. I wanted to ask Melinda how the company has navigated workwear sales, highs and lows in the last three years, plus how it plans to replicate its status as a household name in Australia in the States. Welcome, Melinda. Thank you, Jill. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for being here. Talk me through what was happening in 2017. You were this Wall Street power woman, <laughs> and you saw this need in the market. Why? What, what explains the, the jump there? Yes. Yeah, it was a big jump, um, finance, straight into fashion, and I, I did not have experience in fashion when we when we uh, launched into this. So um, as you mentioned, Scanlon Theodore is an Australian brand. So Sarah Blank, my business partner, and I grew up in Australia, in Melbourne, um, and wearing wearing the brand. And the brand is very much a household name, you know, in Australia. It is a brand that, you know, when I was 18 years old, you know, or younger than that, when I got my first sort of like part-time job when I was 16, two days a week, my mum took me into Scanlon and like bought me a Scanlon jacket to wear on the first day. So, and as I grew up, you know, um, throughout my working career and socially, I have just always worn Scanlon Theodore. It's been the predominant label in my wardrobe, um, as it is with, with, you know, a vast number of, of Australians. So when we moved up to the US in 2012, Sarah had moved over here earlier than I had. We were both wearing Scanlon Theodore every day. Um, and Sarah was working at a financial firm, a different one to me. And we were both having this crazy experience. I would walk into my office across the lobby and without a doubt I would have five women come up to me and say excuse me where is your suit from because our Scanlon Theodore suiting is very it's unique and it's memorable and the silhouette is just not really replicated in the U.S. and Sarah was having the same experience like there were some days where I would say to her I just couldn't wear Scanlon today because I felt revolting and I just couldn't like have so much emphasis on you know people asking what I was wearing like it just it, it, it got that much attention and um so it was Sarah's idea actually she sort of said like how is this brand not here we really felt that there was a gap for us as working women um you know between sort of you know high street brands which are done really really well over here and then you, there's a big jump to um you know, all the beautiful luxury brands, which, um, you know, for a lot of women, the price point is unachievable. So we felt there weren't a lot of brands, you know, in that middle area. There are some really, really wonderful ones, but we we couldn't really find what we wanted on a regular basis. So, you know, we approached the founder, Gary Theodore, in Australia, um, and it took us sort of two years probably to to work out how this was all going to work and then Sarah and I um, left our jobs and you know the three of us as business partners launched the company here in the US so um, you know it's entirely self-funded and Sarah and I quit our jobs the next day and we were off off and running but it was very much 
born out of our own personal need and really the feedback that we were wearing because the feedback we were receiving because I think one of the trickiest things um, is knowing whether something will translate like first is it going to translate internationally Um, and we felt confident on that front just because you know all of these all of these women were so excited about our suits and then once you're over here it's sort of like how is it going to translate to new states so um we felt confident on one front when we did it. <laughs> yes. Well, tell me about the company in Australia as it stood. Was there um, consideration about kind of global expansion? Maybe the U.S. market hadn't come into that conversation yet. Um, I mean, a lot of brands just kind of launch an international website and they're there. Um, obviously, it's not that cheap and easy. But um, yeah, tell me about the consideration for the market, what opportunity um, the company saw um, with working with you and having you take the reins? Yeah, yeah. So, um, and we had sort of many iterations of it with Gary um, because I think what you mentioned, a lot of companies just launch a global website, see how it goes. And then there's the other road, which is um, a lot of companies go down the wholesale path. Um, So, you know, in terms of how how we did it, Gary actually um, used to have a website in the US um, and he would just ship from Australia. But it was pretty, you know, it wasn't, I, I mean, I used, to, I used to shop on it occasionally, but it was too hard, you know, something would arrive and it wasn't quite right and there wasn't really a sensible way to return it and it just wasn't, it was a bit of an afterthought almost. Um, and so for us, you know, getting to know Gary then then shut that down um, well before we were in the picture. Oh, uh, was it? Yeah, yeah, before we were we were in the picture. And um, so for us, we sort of discussed with Gary because Gary is the founder and you know the the owner of the Australian business, the sole owner of the Australian business, um, and he has a really um, he has a large business in Australia. And he'd never taken on business partners before. So um, we sort of discussed the different ways that we could do it. Um, and for us, it just made sense to, to launch a US company here with the three of us. And, you know, as founders, we all needed skin in the game. We all needed to be, you know, there are different ways. You do see brands coming in internationally with sort of like a, franchise model almost you know or the or the founder or the parent company will distribute at cost and then you know whoever owns the brand in in the the other country just does what they want and that was not appealing to Gary or us but for different reasons for Gary you know he's built this incredible brand um and so to just hand the reins over in in the U.S. market to two people you know who, who who was just getting to know didn't make sense and for us like Gary's the genius behind the brand. So it did, we had no desire to just, you know, take over. You know, we need his guidance. We need his partnership. We absolutely rely on that every single day. He's the creative genius. Um, so that model didn't appeal to us. And so we decided the best way to keep the three of us aligned, motivated, charging for the same objectives was to all invest our own skin in the game. You know, that was just the model that made sense for us. Um, and it has worked, you know. We've now opened, you know, we basically started off selling online in the US and in my out of my apartment. 
Um, <laughs> and then now we've grown to five boutiques and an online store and we're opening a sixth next year. So, you know, that model has worked for us. I can see why it would be difficult to translate to different situations, but for us, that's what made the most sense. Got it. So you, Sarah and Gary, is it equal skin in the game? Are you third, thirdsies? <laughs> no, I mean, Gary's, Gary's the, you know, he's, um, Gary's, Gary's definitely the, the leader and, and the yep. founder in Australia. So, um, yeah, he's the leader here also. Okay, got it. Well, tell me about the unique challenges or the unique approach that's required for the U.S. market. I mean, obviously, it's starting a brand from scratch, an unknown brand, which, P.S., I have since become very familiar since our last conversation, and I love a good suit, and I'm like, this is amazing. Anyway, (laughs) (laughs) I'm a fan. Side note. Um, But yeah, what's unique about reaching this market, reaching this worker um, compared to Australia? Yeah, so um, it's the brand recognition for us. It's funny. We have a very typical brand journey for our woman here in the US, which is completely different to what's going on in Australia because they are, you know, 25 years ahead of us. Generally what we do is... um, Well, let me backtrack a minute. Scanlon Theatre really dresses women for every facet of their lives. We actually have incredible knitwear, leathers, you know, more casual wear, denim, we've got beautiful denim, evening wear, we've really got every facet of her life covered. But when we launched in the US, just because of Sarah and my background, we really focused on generating sales with our network. Um, You know, we were, the business was founded off equity. So we we certainly weren't going to be extravagant with PR and marketing and things like that. Um, so we founded the business off, off, you know, the people we knew, the people we had met. And so we had this beautiful product and what we needed to do was bring the women in. And so it was women we'd worked with professionally. That was just the go-to. So what they would do, we would get them in, they'd come in, you know, they'd do a big shop of all the suits, you know, and then they'd be super excited, go home with 12 pieces and, in two weeks, you know, a week or two weeks, uh, we'd ping them, how's it all going, you know, and always the, the response was, can you make me look this good on the weekend? Nice. You know, she was feeling yeah. amazing at work. It's very, um, the workwear is very, you know, it makes you feel really powerful. It's quite structured, but it's also feminine. So it's not like giant, boxy, unattractive pieces. So she felt amazing at work and she was like, can you do this? So then she'd come back in a month or six weeks or something. We'd pop her in our beautiful high-waist jeans, our beautiful high-waist silks um, and our more all of our knitwear and we would just make her feel that way on the weekend um, because Sarah and I, we're working women. We're also, we've got six kids between us. It's like we're, we're you know, we're kind of trying to do everything and so Scanlon Theodore, in my opinion, does absolutely everything, you know, no matter what you're doing. So it was converting that woman from just a professional workwear client to, you know, the Scanlon Theodore woman. Well, I've referenced this a lot because I hadn't heard of it in my coverage. Um, You talked about kind of reaching this customer, um, the customer that you know is there. um, And you kind of, I don't know if you consider them like, 
trunk shows, but I know that you set up shop at like financial conferences for a bit and that that was a, a big sales driver for you guys. Is that still um, a marketing play and and how successful are we talking? <laughs> it's still, it still is, Jill. I mean, it's funny. We've learned so much doing this. You know, Sarah and I, I remember five years ago, We'd, we'd be doing these trunk shows and, you know, these financial conferences and we'd sort of say, oh, you know, in five years or six years, we won't be doing this, we won't need to. You absolutely need to. You know, retail is about meeting your budgets every single week and, um, you know, when something goes wrong and you're not meeting budget, you've got to have just ways to generate sales and make budgets. We have extremely high fixed costs as all bricks and mortar retailers do. So, these conferences are incredible for us. We're doing one this week, one next week, actually. Sorry, two next week, one in New York and one in San Francisco. So the way we discovered, um, I can't remember what the first one that we ever did. It was probably, it was a small one in New York, actually. And we sort of were like, oh, is this going to work? You know, we went up there with our boxes of clothing, set up the racks and we sold a lot. And then we watched those women, you know, we really monitored those women. We've got really great customer data and customer tagging going on. And she just kept coming back. And we were sort of like, look, that was a great sales event for that week, but it's also acquired, you know, 45 lifetime clients. So we do these all the time and we're much more professional about it. We're not just like rolling up with our bags of clothing anymore. Um, we've got an incredible team who executes these um, with us and, you know, we get all the merchandise out. We're going to California, I mentioned that, and that'll be a huge conference with 800 women in attendance over three days. Um, so that sort of gives you a sense of, of how successful they are. And when you look at the costs, you know, you've got, you're sending three staff out, so the costs it's staffing, it's flights, it's accommodation, it's food, it's logistical things. But when you've got that kind of audience for three days, you know, who are at a a conference, you know, and inevitably these women need a bit of a break at these conferences because the (laughs) content is very um, heavy. They love to come out and have a shop and meet the girls and get to know the brand. Um, so we're doing as many of these events as possible. And to be honest, I think we always will. Totally. Oh my, I, I just like, it clicked in my, you need to come to the Glossy Summit and set up. Anyway. That <laughs> we'll would talk. be amazing. Um, <laughs> all these professional women. It's a great engaged, or I guess, uh, audience that, that has full attention. Um, in terms of where you're selling, is it all direct? Is it like you talked about maybe not going directly to wholesale out of the gate, um, but you've opened your stores, online presence, these great conferences. Where else are you selling, if yep. anywhere? Yeah, so we've got a small selection of SKUs on Saks.com, and that's right. really all. Yeah, being direct to consumer was always extremely important to Gary. And when I was new and didn't, you know, I had didn't know what I didn't know, I didn't really get that. Um, and now that we're building the brand here and I understand the importance of the brand itself and maintaining, um, you know, Scanlon Theodore at, at the level which Gary has built it, um, I understand why he was, you know, didn't want to just fly into all these wholesale relationships so we've built the brand out as a direct-to-consumer um, piece and I think probably at some point in the future it would be the time to start 
looking at different wholesale partners and understanding how that would work and how that would interact with our business. Um, but we were just very conservative on that front. We didn't, um, Sarah and I are business people, so we didn't have extent, any experience in wholesale. Um, but what we can do, you know, what we could do was negotiate leases, um, run a profitable company from day one, um, you know, look at our growth, think strategically about the company and sell. You know, a big part of what we do is is generating, generating revenue. Um, so wholesale was, for a number of reasons, just something that we weren't focusing on in the beginning, but I think it is a necessary part of a global strategy going forward. So it may be something that, that, you know, we focus on in the future. Yes. Well, tell me about the kind of infrastructure you've built here and the, the team you've built. Is there a warehouse that's, that's yeah, closer, kind of nearshoring to get these things to, to your customer? Um, yeah. What's going on in the States? So we have a team of um, 36 people um, and they're mostly sales-focused staff um we've got really really strong teams um in each boutique and we really um value them they are the most in my opinion important part of the business to be honest they're the women who are presenting the brand embodying the brand you know because we are still essentially a a small brand in the U.S. you know on any given day you know, we can have up to 90% of clients being new customers, particularly in our Hudson Yards location, for example. Flatiron is a is a more local crowd, but Hudson Yards, we're getting tourists through every single day and every single day they are discovering the brand and it's the women who greet them and help them and dress them and make them look amazing. They are the brand. So for us, um, we've hired a really, really strong team and you need to take care of your team. You need to incentivize them. You need to... Um, you need to, you want them to stay. So the majority of our, you know, our salaries and, and our people are sales focused. We then have um, a small team of more head office type roles um, and they are incredible. So we have a head of talent and we have um, a head of marketing She's based in Miami um, and then we have customer service and inventory slash warehouse and um, the gentleman who manages the website and our electronics um, platform. So it's a pretty small head office team. I think it's so interesting and unique that a majority of your I guess team budget is going to these sales folks. It's such, like you said, a valuable position, a competitive, it's competitive landscape. Um, And I know even just not even between brands, just hard to attract folks right now. Um, Tell me what else, like, is there a certain training involved to ensure like they're representing the brand as you would like it to be represented? What's all involved in getting them? Yeah ensuring that they're up to snuff. (laughs) Yep. Yep. Absolutely. The training, we have extensive training um, for sure. We have um, the head of talent managers that we've always got a trainer going around. We've got, um, you know, a new trainer actually coming over from Australia later this year. So we do pre-pandemic, we're actually going through a funny stage because pre-pandemic we had, um, 
a real, we had a number of staff from the Australian business over here working, you know, they'll come over for two years. And that was really impactful for us in terms of just connectivity between the two teams and also just ensuring that the brand translates, um, you know, exactly consistently across all regions. That's really important. Along comes COVID, all the Australians went back. So we lost the entire Australian contingent. Um, so I'm super excited to be able to get someone back from the Australian business. So she's heading over in December. And the other thing I would say is that um, we are in store every day. You know, my head of talent, myself, Sarah, of course, um, we're in store every day. We don't actually have a head office location um, you know, yesterday I was out at our Manhasset location, which is also where we have the warehouse. So I was working with the team and, you know, and I think when you have that much presence, um, you know, you can make sure that the brand is translating as it should um, because it's very much, and perhaps as we grow, that may evolve. We're opening one more store next year, so that will be six stores in total. Um, but I do think it is you can't just be sitting in head office sending out process emails to to people and it's that face-to-face interaction and it's also that support, you know. Um, sometimes when a store's having a difficult week, you know, you just need to get in there and help them and work out what's going wrong and generate some out-of-store sales for them, you know, just to keep the momentum up and also to keep the girls feeling supported and excited so that they never feel sort of on their own randomly because the reality is, we are a new brand, you know, we're not just plonking these women into um, a brand that's been around in the US for 30 years and has that cachet. You know, we need to build stores that look incredible and draw people in. We need to have incredible sales staff who make women feel and look amazing. Um, And then otherwise, you know, it's it's my job to get women in um, so that the girls can do their things. So, it's extensive training. Um, it's hiring incredible people who care deeply about what they do um, and, you know, making sure that they're compensated appropriately to keep them motivated. You know, we've also had a situation during COVID where some of the bigger brands were wandering around the shopping centres offering really, really big salaries, you know. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, we had funny situations. Um, so you really need to be competitive And as a small brand, you need to think about um, where your dollars are going and what is the most impactful way to spend that money. Um, And our sales team is everything. So we, we really do invest a lot in them. I really want to know what brands are doing that, but I won't put you on the spot. <laughs> when you're in the store, it doesn't, I mean, when you pop up in the store, it doesn't hurt in terms of keeping the the team on their toes. Ah, but are you guys leading with the Australian brand story? Um, I think that adds a lot of interest and um, that backstory to the brand. We absolutely do. And that's a big part of the training um, that we do with the girls Telling the brand story is everything. Um, when we launched, we had a really interesting conversation actually about on the window whether we, because actually the, the brand Scanlon Theodore is quite a mouthful and people forget it. <laughs> so when we launched, we tossed up, should we put something on the window saying, you know, founded in Australia 30 years ago or 30, something like that. We decided against it because we're just, we're our brand is less is more really. 
Um, but the girls are very much, you know, whenever you come into a Scanlon Theodore store, you'll, you know, they'll greet you. Are you new to the brand? Have you Are you familiar with the brand? It, and then, you know, if, if um, the customer is open to it, the girls will tell them about the Australian contingent because I think they really need that context. Um, people do. It's funny. We just opened in Americana Manhasset and the boutique that we um, built there is absolutely beautiful. And I was sort of there every day for the first month or so. And it was so incredible watching women coming in because we've got this really incredible, all the artwork is Australian. We use um, an Australian architect and designer who's done all the stores globally. So it's a very Australian feel. And women sort of come in and they're like, what, what is this? You know, <laughs> they're like, who are you? How do I not know about you? Because it's not... The boutiques don't look like pop-ups. That's not what we do. We build, we invest in really beautiful stores um, because you need to create the right, you know, the right environment to, to entice women to shop a luxury product. So they sort of walk in and they're like, you look like a luxury brand. Your girls sound like a luxury brand, but I've never heard of you and you're in this beautiful shopping centre. So it's that funny reaction basically every single time a new client walks in. So it's super important for the girls to provide that context um, to every client that walks in. We're going to take a quick break. Stay with us. You're definitely talking about the store as kind of this, I mean, what a great billboard for a, a new brand attracting people in. You mentioned a few locations in New York. Where are your stores now and what's your approach to expansion there? Absolutely. So we've got two boutiques in the city, um, Hudson Yards, where I'm I'm sitting now, and Flatiron on 19th Street, just off Fifth Avenue. We're then in Americana Manhasset, which is halfway between the city and, and Long Island. And then we are in um, Bell Harbor Shops in Miami. And we're in North Park in Dallas. We opened there um, a couple of few weeks ago, so that's a very new new boutique for us, new market, and we are opening in DC City Centre uh, in June next year. So we're just starting the yeah the fit out and and everything else that goes into opening that store, um, and that was always you know the plan for us to open the six stores. We've had we've had a very targeted approach to the locations. We knew where we wanted to be. Um, but you do need to be patient when you're an unknown brand, you know, it, it's not, it's not easy getting locations in, in these kind of shopping centers, um, with, you know, that the type of co-tenancy that, that we really value. So we had to be patient and it took a while, but now everything's really falling into place. We've, we've secured the locations we wanted. And then it's a really a matter of, um, focusing on building the brand, well, tell me, um, you had already opened stores and I mentioned at the intro, like workwear and you don't, you don't just do workwear, but, um, wasn't the strongest category we'll say during the pandemic. Um, what challenges did you guys face during the last three years in terms of maybe, um, pulling back anywhere, switching gears, pivoting? Yeah. Yep. So when COVID hit, we were still pretty new. I mean, we are still pretty new. So March, 2020, you know, we opened, to give you an example, I mean, Flatiron, we opened at the start of 2018. Hudson Yards, we were in the grand opening, so we opened in March 2019. Um, and then we traded for about a year and then everything shut down. Um, and during COVID, we actually 
open Balhaba shops because we'd already signed that lease and, and done the fit out. So that that all just had to happen. Um, you know, I sort of think if we got through COVID in retail, we can get through anything. You know, we sell <laughs> luxury yeah. clothing to, to to women and they couldn't leave the house. So we basically did absolutely no sales um, for, you know, a good six-month period in 2020. Um, you know, the government was really generous with all the business support that was provided. So that's certainly helped us keep people employed and, and exist, to be honest. Um, our landlords were really great partners, you know, they really helped us because for, you know, you saw how many brands didn't make it through. Um, and honestly, the reason why we made it through was because of that support from our landlords, from, you know, the, the government PPP loan, that kind of thing. And then it was just getting open as, as, you know, we opened back up when, you know, regulation allowed us to do so. Um, and it was a matter of operating the business in a different way for a significant period of time. It took us a while, you know, we felt like we were coming back, you know, at one point, um, I remember the summer of 2020 women were sort of wanting to go to garden parties or whatever, and we were selling a few dresses and then winter came around and everyone, you know, no one could really leave the house again. So it was really volatile is what I'm trying to say. We had to deal with this incredible volatility, which is really difficult when you've got such high fixed costs. Um, you know, landlords needed to start getting paid and our staff, you know, everything rolled off. So then it was back back on. But staffing in that period, for example, was really challenging. You know, we had no idea whether the Christmas period would be busy or dead. Or So honestly, 2020 was just a, a great challenge. Sarah and I were sort of on the floor and like just, you know, trying to make it work. 2021, you know, things slowly picked up. And from there, it's it, it's taken a while. I, I think I haven't felt confident really until this year. And to be honest, because there was that little COVID spike, you know, over last Christmas or whatever it was, which which scared people again. It's really been since like March this year. We're well above um, 2019 forecast, uh, 2019 actuals. Um, so it's looking to be a good year, but it wasn't until this year that I felt confident. Um, but you never feel confident in the same way. You know, I never in my wildest dreams imagined that no one did. You know, we'd have to close the entire business. And um, so, yeah, I'm, I, I pay great attention to, to the news now and, you know, um, I've always read the news, but I'm always thinking about health scares and that kind of thing in a different way because yeah. now, you know, the impossible seems very, very realistic. So, yes. yeah. Yes. That's, I mean, I hear that a lot in terms of maybe a longer term plan. Everything, like you make one, but it's tentative. And obviously, <laughs> um, inflation's happening. Everybody's bracing for a recession and further economic turmoil. Like, what's your approach? Is it just like nose down, head down, keep at it, keep moving forward? Like, you're not going to, I don't know, like pause or or again, just assume this is happening and change change course in any way. Listen, it's um, 
you know, we are expecting a recession and things to slow. I think it's inevitable given, um, you know, all of the factors that are contributing to that. Um, Our approach is, you know, we're always extremely careful with our inventory buy, but you you need to um, be careful that you don't get stuck with mountains of inventory if you get your forecasts wrong. Um, We, in terms of our salary cost, we keep staffing light because if you overstaff a retail store, then none of the girls have the opportunity to really maximise their own sales. And in a way, you're taking... You're taking away business from them. So we always staff really light. Um, and also because the whole COVID situation was so, so horrible, I'm always focused on not overstaffing because you never want to have to let people go because you made a mistake with staffing. So to be honest, we wouldn't be looking to trim staffing, um, but you need to be really careful with your inventory. Um, and you just need to, that's probably the main focus for us. I mean, the leases are already signed, so that's happening. Um, would we have changed that? No. You know, I do think, um, I'm no economist, but I do think that the recession will be sh- short and sharp probably. Uh, whether short means six months to 12 months is unclear, but, um, you know, we just have to put our heads down and do as many external sales events as we can possibly do so what you and I discussed before um all of the events you know we hold fundraisers a lot we do you know we really hustle and try and um you know generate sales from outside of just foot traffic that walks past the store and I think that that will just have to go into absolute overdrive if women are not walking into the store it's sort of um and our, our team is really great at that as well. We do we actually do a lot of business. We don't have a presence in California, for example, but California is our second biggest online market. So we have a woman yeah. there. Yeah, we have a woman there. And that is really significantly driven by the girls in store. Um, we've got an incredible CRM program set up that they use all day, every day. Um, and they are constantly in store going back and forth with clients in California or or wherever. Um, And so, you know, that just needs to really continue and all of those efforts need to go into overdrive. Yes. You're talking about events um, out of house, I I guess, but um, are events happening in store to bring people into the store? They definitely do all the time. Um, You know, we had a great one in Americana Manhasset last week. We've got two actually this week in New York and we've got um, one next week in New York. We're doing those all the time. It's an ongoing. I don't think we will ever stop doing that. Nice. Yeah. And are people returning to stores? I'm hearing this a lot. But, like, what would you say is the breakdown of currently of in-store versus online sales? Or where where will that kind of land as things kind of shake out? Yeah. For us, it's um, online is around about um, – uh, 30%. It grew through the pandemic and now it's dropped back a little bit. Um, and it'll probably keep dropping back to around about 20%, I would imagine. Um, we also do do a really good job of converting, of bringing online clients into store because obviously our, um, you know, our transaction value is larger in store. We can help women, we can find their sizing, we can really, um, 
you know, we can really maximize every opportunity when we work with clients directly because that's what we do really, really well. We are, you know, our, our bricks and mortar operation is something that I'm really proud of and it was super important to Gary. So for us, when we see an online order come through, um, you know, someone in store will reach out. I mean, we're methodical about how we do it, but someone in store will reach out, check in, check in. you know, I saw you bought this, how's it fitting, you know, please let, feel free to reach out to me if you need anything else. It's very personal. Um, and so often we find women will shop online and then come in, you know, because it's tricky. Shopping online is tricky. I don't think we've, it's, it, I mean, it's a, it's a very successful channel for us, but I, I wouldn't necessarily say we've, we've cracked the code, you know, um, industry rate of return is, is high always. And, it's sizing, it's difficult, it, it's outfitting. It's really hard to sort of wardrobe someone if they're just shopping randomly off a website. You know, we what we do really well is outfit you, you know, the full outfit so that in the morning you don't have to think. You just grab the outfit. You don't have to put on a pant and then rummage around for the right top. It's just there for you. But it's hard to translate that to an online experience. Um so we did a lot of Zoom styling, you know, through COVID. But I think ultimately um, women are pretty thrilled to be able to come back into store. I'm sure. It just seems like, like you said, that hands-on service, it just spells luxury. You guys consider yourself a luxury brand. Is it like, is that driving your your packaging, your all things? How would you, de- where, where, you where do you sit in the market and how is that impacting you, your approach? It does. I mean, when you look at the brand, when you come into store and you experience, you know, the fit out and the sales team that we have, we're operating on par with a luxury store and we're we're seeing that in the with the co-tenancy we've got now in all of these beautiful shopping centers. Women are coming in and they're as I said before, they're discovering us, they're excited about us. You know, um, the majority of our fabric comes from Europe they are, they, these women understand that and they appreciate it and they realize pretty quickly that what they're purchasing in Scanlon Theodore is um, consistent with what they're purchasing across the luxury brands in the US um, in saying that you know our price point is you know upper contemporary to to lower luxury you know um, we definitely have a range of price points so um, while we are producing a luxury experience in store, our price points are not necessarily all luxury and we don't have that brand cachet, you know. Yeah. So it seems like, I mean, word of mouth is huge for you guys. And then kind of, I guess, securing those direct connections where you can reach out to that customer again and you're not newly acquiring customers. It just seems like that aspect of the business is oh so valuable. Um, Would you agree? And um, to what extent is your customer, your uh, are your sales driven by a, a repeat customer, somebody who shopped you before, um, or even just kind of found you organically or via word of mouth versus it, a large spend other than, a, I guess, store? I, I count store in this organic growth. But anyway, go ahead. Yeah. I mean, it differs depending on, on boutique, um, boutique to boutique. So, you know, Flatiron, for example, at this point, about 70% of our customers are repeat customers. Um, We're still acquiring new clients there, which is wonderful and we're grateful for it. But we have a really large contingent in that location of women who live around the corner. 
and they are friends with the girls who work there because we've got an amazing team and they've, they've been there for a long time, that team. Um, and so, you know, probably 70% of that business is repeat clients. Awesome. Yeah, they just yep. trust us. They come in for their quarterly shop, you know, um, and and that's just on repeat. Um Hudson Yards is there is a lot more tourist traffic here so it's lower it's more like you know funnily enough before the pandemic it was 90% tourists it was incredible and then Hudson Yards um, our landlord here did a really incredible job of um, drawing the local crowd in during COVID Um, and at the time I didn't really they weren't necessarily shopping but they were coming in for initiatives that Hudson Yards was putting on and it's turned out to be extremely valuable for us because they just discovered the brand. They didn't really shop, but now they do. So um, we're sort of more like 60-40 in Hudson Yards um, of, you know, repeat to new clients. So the newer stores, obviously, everybody is new, um, but I would imagine it will go in the same direction. North Park Dallas, I think, has a pretty solid tourist um exposure down there so I'm interested to see how that plays out um and Americana Manhasset is very much the local market on the digital side are you playing in the usual channels um the usual suspects the Facebooks the Instagram is there um how large is that investment if so we are we are um we're keeping that investment pretty small for now um just because we're a new brand and it's really expensive. So, um, you know, you can either go for it and really spend, you know, the equivalent of what you're spending on on rent in a luxury shopping centre type thing, um, or you can keep it, keep it, you know, smaller and um, and kind of grow a little more organically. We're sort of dipping out, dipping our feet in the water. We do get, um, you know, interestingly, the Instagram advertising. We're very targeted. And we do get a lot of women coming to store on the back of Instagram ads. Oh, cool. Yeah. If you target, you know, we're obviously targeting targeting working women. And um, so we do get a lot of women popping up in store. Um, And it does drive sales, but it's also extremely expensive. You know, Um, it can be akin to, as I said, rent in a luxury shopping centre to really drive results. So it's a bit touch and go on on that area. For sure. Well, last question for you. Obviously, the holidays are coming up. Would just love to know about your next steps, next plans for for the remainder of the year and potentially beyond. What's next? So we are for the remainder of the year, um, we're really focusing on supporting the newest stores and growing sales in those areas. It, It takes a village with these newer stores. So we've got a bunch of initiatives going on in North Park, Dallas. Um, you know, we've got a really beautiful opening party and, you know, we're just going to host as many events down there with the local women as we possibly can heading into holiday. There's a big charity focus for us through the end of the year as every year, Americana Manhasset in particular, um, our landlord there, that centre has a really um, strong charitable focus, which we love and we always have in the New York stores. So it really aligns with our brand. So I think we've got about four events lined up in that store going through the holiday period, just raising money for different charities that um, either we're affiliated with or some of our key clients are affiliated with. We love being able to support, you know, those women who have helped us so much in the, in the things that they care about. So it's really an event 
focused. It's always for us like events focused. Um, and then we're doing, I, I mentioned, we've got a number of the, um, you know, external events going on. Um, and we are not, one thing that's trickier for us is um, we're not a discount brand. We don't really do, yeah, we don't really do sale. We didn't run a sale last season. Um you know, that's a really slippery slope once you start discounting your product and, and I'm sure it works for others. It doesn't really work for us. And so it is a challenge, particularly in the US, when um, Thanksgiving comes around and then the whole world goes on sale. So for us, um, we really need to focus on providing experiences um, because women are not, you know, if we're just not providing that discount incentive to shop. So we have to provide other incentives to shop and whether that's donations to charities and, um, you know, we, we run periods of time where, like, we donate a portion to, you know, it's not necessarily an event, it's a two-day thing, you know, where we're donating to charities. So it's really just pushing on different fronts to counteract the fact that um, a lot of our neighbours are all heading into discount season. That makes sense to me. Oh, and just show a great, I don't know, red suit and people will, the people will come. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I keep harping on the suits. I'm so sorry, Melinda. So good. Anyway, yeah, Melinda, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it's our specialty. So I'm glad you like them. <laughs> oh my God. Melinda, thank you for being here. This was so fun and informative. So appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me, Jill. That's all for this episode. Our theme music is by Otis McDonald. If you liked this episode, be sure to share it with someone else you think would. Thanks for listening to the Glossy Podcast.